Hey, what's up, listeners? Welcome back to Surf Splendor. Thrilled to have you for today's episode with surf writer Chaz Smith. I'm sure you know Chaz's work. We've talked about it a lot on this show, mainly his book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell. But I, I mean, even if you haven't read that book, I'm almost certain that you've read Chaz's work elsewhere in Stab Magazine, Australia Surfing Life, uh, Surfing. For a, He was an editor at Living Large, was his official title with Surfing for, um, I'm not sure how long, certainly over a year, maybe a couple of years. And um, so you're probably familiar with his work. And we're going to discuss a lot of that work uh, in today's show. But before we do, I want to just kind of follow up on last week's episode. We got some feedback regarding the conversation that Scott Bass and I had about uh, Mickey Dora and his stance. Um, Scott found this scholarly paper that was recently written. He found it at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, and there was a reference to Mickey Dora in it. And Dora was just commenting about professionalism. And of course, Dora was anti-professional surfing, uh, contest surfing specifically. And so we discussed that at length. But um, this comment was left on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com from listener Dave Cross. I assume this is not the David Cross, the comedian, but Dave Cross said, regarding the Dora comment, Dora seems like a sociopath who is always self-serving and doesn't deem others worthy of judging him. His statement has a kernel of truth which he then exaggerates, but he neglects to state that surfers freely submit themselves to this structure, the contest structure. If you would pay me to surf, but told me I had to follow your rules, I would say, where do I sign up? As for all the followers, most people I know got into surfing because it looked fun and was cool, not because of the ASP. The ASP is an afterthought for a lot of people. Second, lots of people try to surf like the pros because the pros rip. The skill level at which pros surf is very enviable to the average surfer. Lastly, a lot of problems the surfing community faces today would clear up if surfing was not cool. End quote. Thank you for that, David Cross. And another comment came from at Crow on Instagram. I have a running bet with him for a bottle of wine based on Matt Banning's Rookie of the Year ranking. I think that my bet was that he'll finish in the top 22. Maybe it was the top 15. I don't exactly remember. Sean, you're going to have to remind me of those details. But anyway, Sean left a comment on Instagram saying, quote, regarding the whole Dora talk, it's moot and irrelevant doesn't even matter if you think surfing is a sport or not. There isn't a single activity today, sport or art, that didn't evolve into competition. Humans compete. That's what we do. First chair in the orchestra, Pulitzer Prizes, world's best pesto competition. It isn't stoppable, and it's entirely advantageous. And even the outliers, the Craig Andersons, the Danes, the Donovans, all those style surfers, they benefit from competition just as directly as Mick Fanning does. My hope, and I think to David's point, is that the surf media and culture should also strive to elevate and honor the sport and to not divide it and pointlessly be mean-spirited just to placate a largely anonymous internet audience that doesn't represent the culture or the spending habits of surfers as a whole. Surf media really panders to the least common denominator, and that's what fuels the mean and divisive spirit that Dora was against. Whether you like the WSL or not, those surfers are largely a group of very humble, likable, and dedicated athletes 
nothing wrong within our sport and bless them that they can actually make money, end quote. Thank you, Sean, for that. I loved it. I agree with both uh, both those comments. And again, just like hearing feedback, um, whenever we have these debates in this show, uh, it's between me and one other person, but I know that you, the listener, has thoughts and comments on it as well. So we encourage you to leave those comments for us on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, Twitter, or Instagram at surfsplendor. All right. Thank you for doing that. And of course, make sure to rate and review this show in iTunes or wherever, whatever podcast app that you listen to. That just helps other people to find it. So thanks for doing that. And without further ado, enjoy today's show. Chapter 1, page 1, Beirut, Lebanon, 2006. There's a gun pressed to my temple, and I have a horrible haircut. I don't know which is worse, having my head shattered by a bullet or living another moment with this truly awful haircut. Why did I do this to myself? Why did I ask the stylist to make me look like Ellen DeGeneres circa 2004? And that's paragraph 1. Alright, I know you want to hear from Chaz, so without further ado... Let's get into this thing. Let's do it. Let's do it. Did you go to Hawaii this year? I didn't go to Hawaii. Are okay. we live right now? Or We're does live. it just record? We're live. It's live? It's live. Amazing. Dude. Yeah. Record um, everything. I didn't go to Hawaii this year, no. Okay. I didn't think so. Yeah. No. Right. Not not for any reason, like uh, any, yeah, like weird, I'm afraid, or I think I'm going to get beat up reason. Just right. It just didn't, didn't happen. Didn't work out. Yeah. Um, We'll get kind of into that and into the book and why that question is relevant, I guess. Um, but I'm interested to hear about, like, you spent time, obviously, in Yemen, Lebanon, Somalia, Middle East. And I'm curious um, what your interest is in fascination kind of with war-torn locales, you know? I think early on it was just the fact that it was so, you know, that's where the action was. It almost seemed... It was cinematic and, and more than anything else going on at the time. I, I think growing up, I was sort of equally fascinated with the evil empire, you know, Soviet Union. And, sure. and I'd watch movies about East Germany and, you know, people trying to escape the wall and this kind of thing. And it just seemed so, yeah, I mean, so James Bondy and so you know, scary, but also so alive. And yeah. then that kind of was finished by the time I got into college. But uh, right around then is when the Middle East started to really kind of, I mean, you know, the Middle East has always been a, a semi-disaster, but <laughs> started to really go a bit more downhill. And so I studied, um, I did a semester at American University Cairo. Right. And, uh, you know, once being there, I think it just, I what started with kind of a fascination with just the, that it was the, the kind of hotspot sort of you know the dangerous spot became then just a real appreciation of the culture and, oh, really? and all that kind of stuff yeah but then you know it was all mixed together always sure. so that's i loved both i loved that it was always in the news for something naughty yeah but then you know i also liked the culture so see that i share the same fascination and interest in the culture but the danger element is the stop point for me yeah well and know? i think it's gotten a lot worse than you know all the time i was running through yemen and lebanon and somalia there was always the you know distinct possibility of getting kidnapped or getting in trouble or 
some bad thing happening, but now it seems like, you know, you're a, a white journalist over there or a, or a white guy at all, and the chances are very high that you're going to get your head yeah. cut off, which, you know, that didn't exist really. I mean, okay. I've spent so much time in Syria. Like, I've spent weeks upon weeks in Syria. Yeah. I never, you know, the worst thing that was going to kind of happen was that you were going to brush up against the Assad okay. policeman and kind of get, you know, maybe taken in for questioning, but that would be it. Like, there would be no, you're not going to get shipped off by some, you know, weird fringe terrorist group and parade it onto YouTube and get your head cut off. And so it was dangerous, but it wasn't, it wasn't suicidal, which I think it is kind of now. And do you? I do. I, yeah, yeah, I have no real desire to go back. Part of it is that I'm a father now, but also I think, I think it's just changed a lot. It's funny. I was just talking to my great friend the other day who's, you know, spent more time, uh, than me in that region. He went and started a business over in Yemen afterwards and, you know, was in Pakistan and, and Afghanistan and all everywhere. And, you know, it's even too dangerous for him now. Like really? there's, yeah, like, and he, you know, was Islamic studies, getting his PhD in Islamic studies. And it's, the wow. whole thing, I think, is gone. It's gone sort of beyond the pale. Crazy. Yeah, which is a which is just so unfortunate. I think radical Islam. There, it used to be coherent. It used to be. It's part of what kind of used to excite me a bit was that uh, I was, you know, never bought into it. But it's, but it was a coherent alternative discourse to the kind of Western, you know, secular capitalism, which is great. Mm-hmm. But that was a. It was a clear alternative, and now it's just they've gone completely off the rails, and it's not a coherent alternative anymore. It's just right. insane and stupid. Coherent in that you could go in and kind of navigate out of the danger. You could participate in it but not engage in danger sure. or be, yeah. yeah or, or you could you could really put i mean that's you know uh during the 2006 war with israel me and and my friend were kidnapped by hezbollah and right um th- you know it was super scary and sketchy and all that but there was some real uh especially when you're kind of face to face with them there was like we had a clear dialogue right and it was part of the fact that I had, you know, studied Islam and been in Egypt and that my friend had studied it too. And we could have a real dialogue about it. And they knew that we weren't Muslims and that was real clear. But, you know, we could have, I mean, we had an an elevated discourse. uh, And I don't know if that's why they let us go at the end. But, you know, I mean, it was all, it was civil. Like, sure, the worst thing that happened to me was I got kicked real hard in my ass but that was it you know that was the the level of torture gun put to your head too though sure right? yeah Which yeah yeah it's traumatic it is but it's not like it, it's you know not the level of what seems like is the is the real go these days yeah so let's get into that actually because that's kind of where you open the book with um welcome to paradise go to hell obviously is the book um and you open it with the story of the gun being pressed to your head. And I assume that's the story that you're referencing right now. Yep. How did you find yourself there? Uh, we were covering the war for, you know, again, I'd spent tons of time in the Middle East and my friend had also. And then um, and let me I'm sorry to interrupt, but let me just backtrack. All this information is in the book. But just to bring listeners up to speed who haven't read the book, you started traveling there on a surf trip, right? Yeah. To Yemen after sure, 9-11? That, yeah, that was the first. You know, I studied there and then I traveled back and forth. But the first time I'd been to Yemen and the first one of the, yeah, like it was probably the maybe the, I don't know, fifth or sixth time I'd actually okay. been to the Middle East. But yeah, it was was right after 9-11, you know, I, I'd read or, or heard on TV that Osama bin Laden's family was from Yemen. And I never really thought of Yemen before. Um, but looking at it on a map, I thought, oh, you know, the country bends and hits 
you know, picks up, it must pick up Indian Ocean Swell. Nobody had ever surfed mainland Yemen up to that point. There's an island, Socotra, off the coast, which oh, okay. people had surfed, but nobody had ever surfed mainland. And so I thought, or, or there was, had been no reports of anybody, so, sure. you know, there's nothing out there. And so a buddy and I figured out how to do it and went, you know, spent three months in Yemen and went deep, deep, deep. I mean, you know, went to places in Yemen where they'd never seen white people before. Like, it's a... Yeah, I mean, it was amazing, amazing, amazing. But yeah, that was the story was covered by Surfer. Surfer, yeah, right. we did it for Surfer and Australia Surfing Life, and then sort of from there did more, you know, Middle Eastern magazine surf trips. Right. And so then that brings us to 2006, where you're working with Current TV, was it? Yeah, Current okay. TV, um, and yeah, we were just covering the war for Current, and uh, yeah, like this situation with Hezbollah. Bring us up to speed with that. Yeah, so. You know, we were, again, both of us had spent so much time in Lebanon already and all around the region. And when the bombs started dropping, we would see CNN and, you know, whoever else was there covering it. They'd always run away and they always had big press trucks and everything. We were like, why are they running? You know, this is why we're here to cover this stuff. And so we would stupidly, uh, you know, when we saw the bombs drop, we'd go into it which was totally, in retrospect, asinine. Like, before I even left, I thought, oh, what's a big deal about a bomb? I'm sure you could hear it coming. And, you know, you hear the jets, and then you hear the bomb, like, whistling through the air, and you know, like, okay, we got to get out of here. But, you know, no. (laughs) Jets fly higher than you can hear, and the bombs, you don't hear them coming. And so we almost got hit. Uh, We were deep in, like, Hezbollah's main controlled zone in Beirut. Okay. Uh, We almost got hit by a bomb, and on the way out... um, you know, we got shot at by, I think it was PLO or Palestinians initially. Uh, and Palestinians actually grabbed us. We were on motor scooters and grabbed us off our scooters and held us a kind of a mob form, wanted to tear us apart. And um, then the Palestinians handed us over to Hezbollah. Okay. And then we got questioned. I think uh, the Palestinians told us that, they, that there was rumor or word that we had been targeting, helping Israeli jets target. And so that's what I think they, I mean, why else would these two weird white guys be on scooters? It was, it, you know, it was strange and we were. Yeah, you we don't were, have a camera crew with no, you or anything no, like that. No, we were so. shooting it ourselves and yeah. so we just had a little mini, you know, whatever. Right. Handycam. And yeah, so at that point it, it kind of evolved. Did that stuff ever um, get published with current TV? It did, yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, why is it awful. unfortunate? I mean, it's awful. Is it's it? so embarrassing. Yeah, I buried it deep. Okay. I've never, I've never shared it. Yeah, but it's online. Okay. It's there. Because I've never come across. I didn't yeah. really go actively looking for yeah, it. Yeah, you but... can't, you can't find it. Thankfully, like, okay. I mean, if you just Google search, it's really hard to find. It's really, really. What are you embarrassed about, about? It's just terrible. I mean, we did like, I'll, I'll send it to you. You can see, okay. you can see it. We did like, uh, we was, yeah, it's, a, it's terrible for a hundred reasons. But none of us, we. We pitched this idea to Current right when the war started. We just, we had to be there. And Current said, great. And they said, can you shoot and can you edit and all that? And we were all, yeah, 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 we'll figure it out. Yeah. And we couldn't shoot or edit. Okay. And so we had a person who was supposed to be back in the States who was supposed to be doing it for us. But she had, yeah, taken off on a bender. And okay. so we sent our footage back to no one, came back, the war was done, nothing edited, tried to figure it out. It was terrible. Finally, Current edited it, and it's it's just embarrassing. Okay, the whole got thing it. is just... So the production quality is why you're embarrassed. Precisely, precisely. I thought, like, the, the um, content is so intriguing yeah. that it almost doesn't matter what the... Even if it was just raw footage, I'd be interested to sure, see. Sure, I mean, and we had footage, you know, of... But even the way they, they package it sure. is just awkward. Like, yeah, but we have footage. We had the cameras running uh, when we got almost blown up by the bomb and then, you know, shot at, and mm-hmm. then... Uh, obviously, we don't have the camera in custody, but 
the people who took the camera take it and they left it on they left it running so the camera went on a, on an adventure and I don't know what happened to this footage because Curran didn't use it but uh, they're there playing you know fiddling around with our stuff hmm. the camera's sitting there on a table and they're talking about how they killed us so uh, in Arabic which is pretty that's <laughs> pretty good gnarly. yeah says, what happened to the what happened to the two guys and she said oh we killed them so yeah <laughs> crazy yeah. well for people who haven't read the book that's chapter one <laughs> which is a really stark contrast and juxtaposition to chapter two which brings us to the north shore basically yeah. welcome to paradise is you know and um what was what was your objective with writing the book? Let's start there. I mean, the first time I'd ever I'd ever been to the North Shore, I thought this is it. It so defied my expectations for what it was going to be. Um, I think, you know, I was probably naive, but I think like most people, you think of Hawaii and you think of, you know, pretty and mai tais and rainbows, and you know, I'd grown up feasting on surf magazines, right. and so I had this picture in my mind of these waves, but. In the surf magazines, they never really, you know, I mean, it's just pictures and they show what they show, but you don't really get a feel at all for for what it really, you know, feels like to walk down Kainui or to be out at night or you get no feeling. There's and limitations to print. Precisely, obviously. precisely. And uh, it was just so, you know, in some ways it was so off-putting and so violent and so kind of scary, but also so fun. And so, you know, it was, it was this you know two sides of the coin mm -hmm. this beauty but also this real violence and i couldn't believe nobody had ever written that story written the the real sort of dark side you know of of the north shore and i thought okay you know the first time i ever went i thought i got to do this and mm -hmm. it took me you know five or six more years to to actually put pen to paper but um as a you know middle class kid growing up in orange county having a similar experience to you the book actually uh conveyed a lot of what you're talking about to me it achieved the goal that you're talking about oh, thank you where, yeah where i had i'd been to hawaii a number of times and i've been there um even to surf during the winter time but never as a journalist yeah. and so i hadn't been exposed to those things that you're talking about but i know all the names yeah and i've even heard rumors of the stories yeah but none of it had been substantiated, yeah. really. And so to read the book and to really, uh, it could still be rumor. I mean, it's not to say that it's fact because you printed it, but you know, to have it somewhat sub substantiated was super intriguing and filled in a lot of the gaps, added a lot of color, and um, I don't know, just added a lot of depth to the experience. I kind of understand the North Shore experience better I mean, based on the book. And that's the funny thing. Going going in, I thought, okay, there's no way. I'm not even going to begin to pretend to be write the story of the North Shore. Like, sure. I'm not Hawaiian. I haven't spent, you know, I've spent five or six or whatever right. it was winters there. But, you know, I don't live there year round. Um, and there's absolutely no way I could tell that story. But what I can tell is the story of how it feels for this outsider to come into this world and you know that was 100% is all I was trying to do is this is how it feels when you're not from here to drop in here during you know these you know I mean the book takes place in in one day I think but you know this is how one day on the North Shore feels if you're not from here and sure. if, you're, if you're tangentially involved in the surf sort of world right and have a little bit of a background exposing sure. certain elements of the surf world as well. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of stories that are worth discussing in the book that I'd love to get a little bit of elaboration on. Um, the first is the Mick Fanning incident, right? So you kind of tell the story about Mick Fanning cursing, calling you a Jew, saying he should punch you in the face for the things that you've written about him. Um, and you wrote about the incident, which set off a series of events. You wrote about it in Stab mm -hmm. magazine. 
And one of the events um, kind of that spiraled out of that was Zach Weisberg founding the inertia.com kind of now in hindsight, seeing the things that happened based on that event and you writing about that event. What are your thoughts with five years of retrospection, I guess? I mean, it's just such a funny, it was such a funny, weird thing that happened. Um, And yeah, it's funny that it's, that it's still, I guess at the time I didn't really think about it that much. Just, I wasn't even going to write it. You know, when it first happened, I thought it was really funny. And I remember I should. I probably shouldn't say this, but it's is funny still. Uh, I called Brody Carr, and thought I, you know Brody at the time was the the CEO of the ASP. Right. And I called him, and he and I had a funny relationship, kind of. You know, I'd I'd written a bunch of horrible things about Brody too, uh, and one day Brody, uh, it was in Europe, and came up, and somebody said, "You gotta, you've got to meet Brody," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay." And then. Somebody said, I, I've arranged a, uh, I think it was Paul Evans, the editor of Surf Europe, said, I, I've arranged an arm wrestling contest between you and Brody tonight at the bar. So I thought, there's no way Brody's going to show up. So I, I'm sitting there at the bar, like, whatever, you know. Did just, people show up to witness, or was it just like... A couple did, a couple, okay. yeah, I mean, there's pictures and stuff. Okay. And I was just, you know, sitting there, all smoky and bad attitude and whatever, and... Uh, in came Brody, you know, again, CEO of the ASP. Right. He had a hoodie on, his hoodie pulled over and came in like a, like like a prize a fighter. Yeah. <laughs> like punch in the air. And from that moment on, I've loved Brody Carr. Like he's so funny and didn't take himself seriously. And we had the greatest, you know, I, I mean, I wrote all kinds of stuff about him, just poking fun at him. And he thought it was all real funny. And hmm. yeah, so we had, we had developed a really nice relationship. And I called him right after that happened. And I said, you, you won't believe what happened. I had no intention of writing it. And I told him, and I thought he was going to try to like really spin it real quick. Like sure. tell me not to write it and blah, blah, blah. He just started laughing and that was it. He just like laugh, 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 laugh. And that was it. Because Nick thought, was their world champ. Nick the was their world champ. And I thought, okay, he's not going to want this out. But he just laughed. And then I called Derek at Stab and told him what happened. And Derek said, oh, you have to write this. And I hadn't even thought about it at that point. I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I do. Like it's, it's funny and it's true. And to me, it was only funny and true. Uh, but it wasn't this sort of newsworthy. No, right. it was a, it was a funny anecdote, sure. you know. And so I wrote it for Stab, and it didn't get any kind of traction for the first. The issue was on the newsstands, and Stab was careful about not putting the story online and stuff. You know, they knew what they were doing, but uh, it was in on the newsstands for like ever. Stab's, you know, the magazines I think come out once every two months if if they're lucky. Right. And so it was on for I think eight weeks before anyone sort of said anything about the story and then it was like instantly news in in australia and then it then it got yeah blown up yeah but yeah uh so what what do i think about it now it's funny that it's just stuck around that it's still a thing i think but it has because of the things like i said that have become offshoots of it like the inertia and then sean thompson taking a stance and all this other stuff that kind of happened because of it i think it just i think what it really did was highlight how cloistered surfing is and the fact that that was a big deal uh and caused anything to happen just shows how what a closed little weird world surfing is that just people don't talk openly people don't talk honestly there's you know, you can talk about getting barreled or, the, I mean, you, you, there's just so many limits on what's allowed in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, have you talked to Mick no, since? No, which kills me because, like, you know, it was not vindictive on my part, the sure. story. Uh, I was just, again, 
I told a true funny story and to me it was funny and it was true that's what happened and but no I haven't and I would love to and I keep trying to go through intermediaries you know like you have tried to reach out sure wow like come on let's just go out you can yell at me whatever what like yeah everybody says he's a great guy I, I have no doubt that he's a great guy and yeah it'd be really funny I think to sit down with him and talk and someday maybe but he seems to have very little interest sure he's got enough going on in his life i mean but i also think like i even knowing that story and believing that it's all true i don't think mick is anti-semitic no no i think he you know it's just like he was heated he's angry and he's drunk and he's yelling things at you that's what happened so it's funny that you know that i don't know that he would put any additional weight behind it or even take heed to the claims that he is anti-Semitic. Yeah, no, and I, and I never suggested that he was either. No, like, he exactly. was just, I was just said, this is what he said. He you know, said and, effing Jew. Yeah. I mean, he, undeniably. Yeah, that's what yeah. he said, and and so, you know, yeah, yeah but it's funny that, I, I wonder, he probably thinks that he has nothing to gain from sitting down and talking with me, but yeah, I'd write a good story. Yeah, So interesting. Um, the other kind of main, that's kind of in introductory story in the book but it leads us into your relationship with eddie rothman who's this infamous north shore character do you want to give listeners kind of a explanation of who eddie is sure i mean i think eddie is is kind of the boogeyman on the north shore for those who are involved in surf in any way i think the the specter of eddie kind of haunts what you do you're worried that eddie's going to come crack here that you're going to you're going to somehow cross eddie at some point and so he i think he's rumored to run things and to you know be in charge of this or that or regulate this or that and there's plenty of rumors of him you know beating people up or slapping people or knocking people's teeth out so there's this huge amount of mystique and then he really lives up to the mystique you know he's gravelly voiced and always has his sunglasses on um really looks like you would think this big scary north shore guy would look yeah it's like the north shore has this kind of impending sense of I don't know, masculine doom yep. over it anyways. The waves are big and all this stuff. And then Eddie just personifies. Exactly. Not only does he personify it, but he's widely known as being the the uh, kingpin exactly. of it. Exactly, exactly. And even the name, I mean, Fast Eddie Rothman, like the, yeah. all of it, all of it like yeah. really builds, yeah, this myth uh, builds upon itself and yeah, creates this perfect character. It really it. does. But it's so... Um, shocking that you would end up having a positive relationship with Eddie. That's what was shocking in the book that I didn't really have any background insight into at all, yeah. you know? Um, but I guess it started with him calling you to tell you that he slapped Mick yeah. based on your interaction <laughs> yeah. with Mick. Because yeah. Eddie has Jewish background yep. and I guess took offense to what Mick said based on what you published yep. and slapped Mick, the world champ. Yep. Uh, is that a true story? Or? I think so. I mean, that's what Eddie told me. He I've, told I've you never, there's no reason for him Yeah, to I've never heard anything from Mick about it. Obviously, I don't I think Mick yeah. would want to. Yeah, but he, I guess Mick went over to his house for a party or something, and Eddie slapped him on the on the front porch. And then, you know, of course, once you get slapped, you're okay. So exactly. then, then Mick was in. But, yeah, he, he copped one. Um, one of the stories that you kind of reiterate in the book, which I had heard about just through rumor, was that, um, about him slapping Graham Stapleberg, the VP of marketing at Billabong, inside the Billabong house, along with other executives. Uh, he beat up the other executives who were in the house at the time. You said in, in your book, the quote is, getting beat up is traumatic. And then you fall, finish the paragraph with, getting beat up 
uh, and possibly killed in your own house when you're the executive of a billion dollar publicly traded company without even the option of calling the police or any sort of help is the North Shore. Yeah. You know, that kind of exemplifies the North Shore. And you also, though, talk about Eddie Rothman as kind of being a Robin Hood character for the North Shore and kind of protecting and making the water safer by keeping out a lot of the kooky element who would go out into these death-defying waves and cause havoc. Do you think that there's value to the system that exists on the North Shore, the localism, the eddy, um, and do the... Does the end justify the means? I, I mean, I completely think so. I you think do. I think that it's a really scary place. I mean, those waves are scary, right? Sure. Like, and they're not everyone should be out there. Um, and not only that, I think the place needs to have some kind of mystique. I mean, I think that when places don't have mystique, they, you know, and I, and I don't mean to sound anti-corporate or anti-capitalist, sure. but, but just corporate interests take over, right? That's where the money is. And so I'm sure without those guys, the North Shore may be, you know, just big Disney hotels, you know, with, yeah. with it wouldn't be the North Shore anymore. And so to me, I love the fact that the North Shore exists. Like it's not someplace I want to go all the time, nor is it a place that I really, yeah, I'll, ne- you know, never make a home on the North Shore, but I love that it's there. I love that it's there and it's dangerous and it's dirty and it's scary and you never quite know what to say and you never quite know where to go. And the, the fact that that's, that's true makes me really happy. And to me, that is entirely justified. Yeah. Uh, in contrast to the Middle East, you know, and that's a contrast that you draw in the book as well. It's you talked about um, how the Middle East has changed and it used to be somewhat coherent and now it's just chaotic. It seems like there's still some coherence Comple- on the North Shore. Completely. And that's and even the way I was juxtaposing in the book, the Middle East and the North Shore, it's the Middle East is always other. Uh, and the North Shore is not. The North Shore is still the United States. Right. And so that's what makes the North Shore, to me, more scary is the fact that you can be basically home, you know, in air quotes, uh, and have no control. Whereas the Middle East, you, you don't expect to have control. But exactly to your point, even more now, like there is a coherent structure on the North Shore that if you follow these rules and if you live by these kinds of principles, more or less, and, you know, I, I talk about in the book that sometimes you never really know, like, do you look at a guy coming down the street or do you avert your eyes? Do you say hi Mm -hmm. or do you not say hi? Like you never quite know what to do and you never quite know what's going to get you a slap. But, you know, I think more or less, and and it's the most cliched thing in the entire world, but I think at some level it's true that if you're respectful out there, if you show a level of respect and you're not just a total pushover, like I think you have to be confident, but also be respectful that, you know, you'll be okay. Like you'll make friends and, and, you'll be fine. And you talked about you'll get a slap. Sure. But you're not going to get your head cut off. No, exactly. You know, exactly. It's Nobody's like, kidnapping you. And, no. and Yeah, or even like the Ricardo Dos Santos. I mean, as, as tragic as, as that is, most likely you're not going to get a gun pulled on you, you know? And, and exactly. If and some, he had beef with Jamie O'Brien, but was still able to come over the North Shore and dominate Pipe. Precisely, precisely. You know? Like, And then to me, that's what makes... There is rules, and there is guys like Eddie, I think keep it from just getting out of, you know, keep it from both getting totally oversaturated with, you know, whatever, tourist kind of utopia thing, but also keep really other, you know, other really genuinely bad elements from kind of rising up. And I think people can say what they want about Eddie, but, and people could say, well, you don't know Eddie, you know, but I've spent a ton of time with Eddie and 
yeah, I there's things he does that are genuinely, I think, very important. And he, I know without a, a shadow of a doubt that he loves that place more than I've ever seen another person love any other place. Sure. Like he loves the North Shore. It's interesting. I, I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Yeah. Like you make a compelling argument. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still, but, when you're caught in it, it's horrifying. Like, like this, uh, oh, absolutely. But like this Martin Luther King Day was yesterday, right? Yeah. In the U.S. and. It's like my wife came home and we were talking about the movie Selma that just came yeah. out. And it's like, oh, yeah, but didn't he cheat on his wife a bunch of yeah. times? And it's kind of like, yeah, you can criticize his character as an individual for those discretions, uh, indiscretions or whatever. But um, it doesn't doesn't degrade the good work that he did, yep. you know. And so but with Eddie, it's a little bit more murky and gray. And it's for like, sure. I'm not sure that the means justify the end and like what i like to do is play out the scenario in my head with that graham stableberg situation (laughs) right yeah so like eddie walks into the house and beats up a bunch of people that work for billabong bunch of executives and they take it they don't even fight back eddie's by himself in reality if there's five or six of them they could have jumped eddie for sure and beat the crap out of them so let's play out that scenario. Yeah. They beat the crap out of Eddie and leave him unconscious. Yeah. And they think, well, we're on the North Shore, which is pretty removed from society. Yep. Let's get the F out of here before he becomes conscious and uh, and make our way to the airport in Honolulu. Yeah. Well, Eddie does come conscious at some point. You think he's going to rally the troops at that point, get them all in their vehicles and chase those guys down the highway. I mean, that that seems like a logical sure. conclusion of what would probably happen if they chose to fought back and they didn't have police sure. around. So where does this end? Does this end on the highway between the North Shore and the South Shore? Or? No, I think it would end with those guys just not being able to come back, really. I okay. mean, and that would be, I think they, I don't know. That's the thing I think about the North Shore is at the end of the day, uh, Eddie and anyone who loves the North Shore thinks there's no way you're not coming back. And that's why a guy like Graham does come back because the, like there's some addictive quality to the North Shore yeah. where God, it's not good for them. They shouldn't go probably. Graham should not go to the North Shore. Yeah. Uh, but he can't help going every year. And you know, like this last year, I heard um, from a, a fairly good source that they had to have security for Graham. Uh, right. The, yeah, the ASP or WSL now had to, yeah, hire security to walk around with Graham. And so if you have to have security and you're going to some stupid surf, not that it's stupid, but some a surf event, right? Uh, why go? I mean, you know, but there's that's the North Shore. It's addictive. Like yeah. people go that shouldn't go. Interesting. So I think that's what Eddie would think is, okay, I'll catch you, I'll catch you on the flip side, right? right? Like I don't have to chase you into town. I'll wait till you come back because you will come back. Right. And there always seems to be a reason for Eddie's actions. Like it's not happening out of just the blue sky no i mean you know it's like with that situation sure, graham's a dick i think i mean <laughs> graham's been a dick to me before and i could totally i don't know eddie told me his version of why he did it right and i don't know that it's true or that it's not true but from yeah. my experience with graham i totally believe eddie's version right so yeah, yeah. and i that uh version is detailed in the book so yeah. i mean we don't have to get into it now but i highly encourage listeners to definitely read that yeah and uh it's a really interesting story um have you kept in contact with eddie at all yeah you, ever since this book came <laughs> sure. out i'm wondering how he feels about the yeah. way you depicted him oddly yeah uh eddie i'd be loath to say that we're friends i don't sure. know that 
Yeah, but I, I really, I, I really oddly respect him. When the book came out, he was frustrated initially. I think that he didn't have more of a say. And you know, I told him when I was writing it that this is my story; it's not your story. And I'd be happy, more than happy to like Eddie's story would be fascinating. And Eddie just is a character in my story, right? Eddie's whole story would be that's a book that I'd want to read. Yeah. Um, and I told him that you know, I'll help you with that. Uh, and so he was initially, I think, a bit mad when it first came out, just that he didn't have more say. Um, in the editing process precisely precisely and you know what came out and all that and so uh, he actually had seen uh, got a hold of a manuscript well before even a year before the book even came out so um, but yeah I spent a bunch of time with him after he actually read the manuscript oh okay and you know I did a Playboy story on him and he and I spent a ton of time together that's right and And that was after that was after he had read it's not after the book had come out but it's after he had read an early, early, early draft of the book that was, you know, completely wild. But yeah, um, and yeah, we talk on the phone pretty regularly still. Like, hmm. and he was mad, but then he called me up and said, "Oh, you know, it's dumb. You know, it's, it's a good book. You you did okay." So yeah, I got yeah, amazing. I, yeah, it's. I mean, what? And I think though, it it almost goes to show that Eddie's he's not unreasonable. And he's com- he's very 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 nuanced, um, but yeah, I mean, oddly, I, I like him. So yeah. I like him, and I know that someday he could give me a good crack for something I do or say. But you might have it coming. Sure, for something that precisely. You say. I still I still like him. Um, yeah, I mean, what's interesting, I think, with art, oftentimes in all different forms, it's like the specific exact recreation of the true event doesn't necessarily convey the vibe as accurately as an abstraction of it. Yeah. You know, and so he might've got angry that some of the details weren't correct, but I think your abstraction of it conveys really the truth of the matter, probably more than the real. I really tried really, really, really hard to paint the proper picture of who he is. Right. uh, Both, you know, good and bad and tried to make the, yeah, a complex character that really breathed. And again, it's not Eddie's full story, right? Eddie has, yeah. I mean, I've sat with Eddie for hours and hours and hours and hours, and he has stories that, you know, blow you away. I mean, he's obviously, that guy has lived many lives, but yeah, I tried to capture at least a true picture of who he is. Um, and I didn't, I worked really hard on that. And so, yeah, I, I felt really good. Even if he was gonna hate it, mm-hmm. I felt that I did, uh, I made a true character. Yeah, it's a compelling character. Like, it's fascinating. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> it's it's really, really fascinating. Uh, what do you talk on the phone about? <laughs> oh, well, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, he'll call me up and, you know, he'll be mad about something, mad about that what the... That you publish or just, like, in no, the no, media? No, 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 just generally. Like, okay. mad that the WSL is being shifty. And then, sure. yeah, I actually owe him a call. I owe him many calls right now. But, yeah, like, he'll just be frustrated or want to talk or or McCool have done something and he'll just want to share it. Like he's a, I mean, he's just a, yeah, he's an interesting guy and mm. we have, we have fun conversations. Usually it's kind of surf, obviously surf related. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Um, aside from Eddie, have you received any retributions about writing the book at all? No, and you know, I don't know who I'm sure people are frustrated. But again, I didn't want to go out and just do like, I kind of I think when I first started writing it, I felt like I was going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and burn all my bridges and all the other cliches. But as I was writing it and working on it, I just, I wanted to really make a true, this is the way it feels again, for an outsider coming into this world. And I've worked really hard on that. And then I thought that I was going to get a bunch of blowback, but I wonder if, and I'm not saying that it's, you know, obviously the best book ever written or by any sure. stretch of the imagination, but I think I did, or I, yeah, I think I did capture what it feels like for an outsider, and I think other people kind of have recognized that, and so mm -hmm. I think that's why there hasn't been any blowback, because I think people think, you know, I'm sure certain people have take issue with how they're portrayed, but I think generally people think, yeah, you know, that's kind of how it feels for Anyb an outsider. Anybody who reads the book can appreciate exactly that. I would just worry about the people who don't actually read the book that just yeah. get one, like, little excerpt from it. For sure, and yeah. I'm sure, you know, I haven't had any slaps yet, but Good. I'm sure somebody's going to be, you know, somebody could definitely come out of the woodwork at any point and say, oh, you said this about me, and, you know, be if, real mad. But, if it hasn't happened yet, I think you might be in the clear. I mean, but that's writing in general, right? And sure. if you're if you're scared of yeah. that kind of stuff, then there's no point in, t if, yeah, there's no story to tell if, yeah. you're, if you're scared about the blowback, I think. The postscript in the book takes place just after you finished writing the book. And um, after the word had spread and maybe the manuscript had spread and stories uh, about the stories that you'd be telling in the book. And then you received an invite from a magazine which you hadn't heard of to go pig hunting on the east side of the island with some pretty scary sounding characters. Um, you were concerned it sounded like a setup. Yeah. You know, people know I'm going to be spreading these stories. Now I'm getting this invite from people I don't know to go out into the middle of the woods with weapons. Um, you, you go ahead and tell that story in the postscript and you talk about the hunters castrating a boar and you carrying the carcass on your back and the blood dripping down. It paints this real eerie, ominous scene. What was that about in hindsight? I mean, do you know? No, I mean, not. It was a magazine, then the story came out, and it's it was about pig hunting. I mean, it was all totally on the surface. I mean, okay. it was what it was. Yeah, it was a story okay. about pig hunting with those guys, and these guys are great, and we had a lot of, you know, I'm still kind of buddies with some of them. And cool. Yeah, it, was, it was awesome. Crazy. It was totally wild. I mean, it's it set itself up so well to be something completely ominous, and it was just not. I mean, it was... Great. It was awesome. And I learned a lot more about, you know, I never been to the East side. And so I learned kind of the dynamic, a bit of the dynamic over there and mm -hmm. how things worked over there and how it's crazy that an Island as small as Oahu 
its sides are so distinct, right? Oh, yeah, the North Shore totally. is completely a distinct ecosystem from the east side, which is completely distinct from town, which is completely distinct from the west side. And totally. it's a teeny island with, you know, four worlds as different or more different than San Diego is from Los Angeles is from San Francisco. Yeah, really. And that story served a number of purposes, you know, and um, it did a really good job. It was a perfect story to kind of illustrate a lot of things. And one of them, just kind of the contrast where you end the book with just like, the high fashion scene of the fancy hotels and retail stores in Honolulu, yeah. you know, which the fashion element throughout the book was hilarious, you know, <laughs> yeah. from the first sentence of the book, pretty much till the last sentence of the book. I thought that was a really good, I don't know, comedic device throughout the oh, book. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it made me, uh, for the first time ever question what outfit I would wear to this interview. <laughs> That's awesome. That makes you feel real good. <laughs> Which I, I didn't adjust at all, but I at least questioned about, it. That's awesome. You know? That makes me happy. Still wore jeans and a t-shirt. Um, so that incident that you document in the book with Mick Fanning in 2009, and that you talked about a little bit now about Derek Riley publishing the thing in Stab, and um, he published it to what you said was at the expense of hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars in lost ad revenue. Yep. But he staked his claim, stood by you, yep. stood behind you, and you said that you even said, hey, pu publicly fire me so yeah. that you can retain this business. And um, that was kind of an important turning point, I would think, for your relationship with Derek, right? Oddly, that was with Sam, the publisher. Like, he cares about the business. Derek, oddly, he cares, but Derek, I think, is driven so much by story and by, I don't want to say rocking the boat, but yeah, like being different and being being different that he would have, Derek would have never. That was like, yeah, Sam, I mean, Derek told me to publish and Derek would, or Derek told me to write it, Derek published it, and Derek would stand by me forever. Derek, it would be no issue ever on, you know, there'd be no question about him firing me ever sure. for anything like that. That was with, yeah, Sam, the publisher was different because Got Sam it. had the business interest and Absolutely. it would have made sense for Sam to be able to kind of cut his losses here and blah, 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 blah. But you know, Sam's also real savvy and thinks, okay, if, if we as stab and you know, stab back then was a bit different than stab today. But sure. if we as stab fire someone for this thing that we published, then we would look pretty bad. Yeah. And so I think Sam was smart enough to, to know at that time too, that it would be a bad look to, stake a claim well tell me about Derek and use it as a segue to talk about your current project yeah I mean Derek to me is is the biggest genius in surf really? uh, I've hands bar none hands down yes like and it's funny to me always funny to me that his name is not more widely known um, in the surf world and I think it's just I don't know why it really is I think he I don't know if he prefers to stay behind the scenes because I don't think that he he purposefully stays behind the scenes, but he does, he's also not, you know, a, a real chest beater. He's just really, really talented and really sharp and really funny. And Stab is more or less his brainchild. You know, it's with he and Sam uh, dreamt it up together. Uh, but I, I think the whole tone of it was Derek. Um, and yeah, he's just, he's just, I don't know how to describe him beyond. I mean, he's just the real perfect man for the man for the hour. F beyond funny, beyond sharp, beyond witty, and 
really, really talented. So what what was the idea behind Beach Grit, and how did you guys partner up on that? What's the whole impetus? So uh, Derek was the basically the reason I got involved in surf riding or started riding again. I wrote a, the first piece, you know, went to Yemen and then did a piece for Australia Surfing Life and thought, oh, sick, I'm a writer now. And the Australia Surfing Life, I remember it came to my house and I opened up and read it and thought this is the biggest piece of shit I've ever read in my entire life. Really? Yeah, I'm not writing ever again. Just because so, they massacred it? No, no, it I just was or? a shitty writer. I just oh. thought, I just had this dream of myself as a writer, but I'd never really done anything before. You know, I'd sure. gone to school and stuff, but you know, I, it was just shit. It was a bad story. It was like overwrought. It was terrible. Um, and then, so I didn't write anything for like two years. And then on a trip to Lebanon for uh, Vice that my buddy and I were on, he was writing it and Vice kept returning it and saying, this isn't right, you know, this isn't right. And so I said, oh, I'll just give me a crack. And I just wrote like a complete dickhead, just like eh, skating and it's fucking sick, just like stupid. And they said, oh, we love it. It was perfect. So they printed that. Derek read that uh, and said, oh, reached out to me, you know, and this was forever ago. And then, so yeah, I write, you know, I edit this magazine called Stab. And so I started writing for Stab and then Derek's and I, my relationship just, yeah, developed from then. How did it turn into Beach Grit? So I think Stab kind of took a, a bit of a different direction than, than, not that Derek didn't like it, but I think Derek just wanted to do something more a bit, I don't want to say like early stab because it's not like early stab at all, but I think just have fun again. I think he wasn't having fun and it was fairly corporate and it yeah. was, you know, stab has stab has become, uh, a, you know, a big thing. I mean, it's not just a fun little website anymore. It's this, it's this thing in surf now. Um, more revenue exactly. gets involved, the more kind of red tape that gets involved totally. and, and I, restriction. And I think Derek has no real interest in that. And I think Derek and I, he and I totally align on the, you can still make a viable business and be way out there and be, you know, really controversial completely. And you, where you're not beholden to the advertisers anymore, that you're providing a service that the advertisers want. And that's why they partner with you as opposed to you just whoring out to the advertisers, which yeah, stab surfing, they all do. Right. I mean, the advertiser says boo and they all go hide under the desk or say, what do you, you know, what do you want? And I think content has, it's not nearly as good as it could be. And I think Derek and I are both, I was done with surf, frankly, after the book. I, mm. was, I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. I was on to other things. But Derek is the one person who I'd come back for. And his idea for Beach Grit, you know, really turned me on. And, you know, this he pitched it to me kind of probably a year before it came out or two years before it came out. And so he and I kind of partnered. And what was the idea? It was just that. It was having fun again. It was going back and telling stories that aren't, you know, fact check. Or, I mean, not fact check, but not uh, run run through the the prism of what is the advertiser going to think before you before you put it up, and it's back making stories that the audience wants to read as opposed to what the advertisers you know going to sell ads against. Right, and I think there is there's just so much white space for that out there. That's, I do too. Th people aren't doing that, and I think we'll get better and better as we go. We're still you know young and and you know, trying to work out the kinks and that, but it's just, I mean, I'm, I was sick. I worked for surfing for a year or for more than a year, for a few years. Uh, and it's a great magazine, but again, always being beholden to the, to the advertisers. And I wouldn't ever have to cop any beatings from the advertisers, but my editors and, you know, mm -hmm. publishers were always, you know, and God bless them for, for taking it on the chin. But you know, fuck it. I don't like, yeah. fuck it. And fuck you. If you can't have fun enough 
that you're gonna any little thing you're gonna whine about, then you know what the hell. So that's Beach Grit. Talking about you guys believe that there is a viable business model that sponsors will support that. It seems like Vice would be a good example of yeah. somebody who's found that business model, right? I totally. Mean, they don't seem. I've never worked with them, but it doesn't seem like they shy away from controversy. No, no. Or edit. Yeah, and Vice is pretty shitty in a lot of ways. I think. But yeah, like in terms of that, in terms of building a viable business that doesn't pander to what the advertiser thinks he wants, rather showing the advertiser what the consumer wants to read exactly. and then bringing the advertiser on along for that. The advertisers are essential to this whole thing. I just think that in surf publications, the cart has been put before the horse, yeah. which means that the content is shitty. I mean, right. I look I look at, you know, again, I love so many people at nice train. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I love so many people at who work at Stab and work at surfing, but their content is shit. It's all, it's, you know, B grade, drained of any kind of interesting material. It's just pale. And I think they can't figure out how to switch it because they're already, they're stuck. They're yeah. stuck in that model. But I think Beach Grit is the new model of maybe we'll never be as nearly as big as, you know, Stab or Surfline or Surfer, Source Interlink or anything like that. But I think what we will be is have a real audience and I think I mean you know there's so much shifty stuff that goes on at those publications of buying Facebook likes and oh, yeah, where, yeah. you know you're pumping your numbers and making it look like you're you are this thing and I'm not blaming any of them for that but I think it's I know that happens and you know we don't do that we don't have to do that because I think building a core audience that likes what you do and then expanding on that core audience as opposed to again you know pandering to the advertiser and the the advertiser will need that they'll realize though that the hundred thousand likes of a sleepy audience on surfer isn't as motivated a consumer as the thousand likes totally. of people that are on beach grid. Totally. That, that's what I think too. And I yeah. think that, I think it's a certain, cause I love the brands. And I mean, one of the things that's really frustrating, you know, as, as kind of the surf industry just went into the tank and then hasn't really been able to come back out, you know, as the American con economy has recovered a bit. Yeah. Surf, clearly has not recovered and I think part of it is because the media is not doing a good enough job of telling compelling stories that mm. the media has allowed the advertiser to get in the way of that and that's not what they do the you know the Quicksilvers and Billabongs and Hurleys they make products and some of right. them make good products and they should concentrate on doing that and allow the media to tell stories to actually engage people and interest people and then you come on to that you know as opposed to it seems yeah. like these days the media is just doing it all, right? The media is telling the stories. Right. Or not the media, I'm sorry. The brands are doing it all. Right, the brands right, right, are telling right. the stories and they're trying to make a product. They're just not good at it. Well, I think additionally um, with Vice, they've done well at navigating and evolving uh, media platforms. Completely. You know, starting out in print and then going, I mean, they were doing stuff online that was so interesting. Yeah. Long before anybody was doing anything sure, online. Sure, sure. Like tons of different series that were super controversial and um, and then a show on HBO and MTV yep. and just trying all these different things. Some of it sticks, some of it yeah. doesn't. Um, what is Beach Grit? What is, uh, that, that conversation of evolving media is something that's interesting to me with surfing because yeah. I think it has evolved in surfing in different ways, but a lot of them have not been successful attempts. No. 
and there's a lot more potential that's been really actualized in a lot of ways. Yep. What What is the model? What's the idea with Beach Grit? What are you guys doing? So we started, we've started just, you know, obviously with sort with just written content because on that's- On the web. On the web, exactly. That's what Derek and I do. We're writers, you know, we're not video guys. Um, and we're not, you know, it's, it's what we, we're not photographers. So it initially started just riding and, and we wanted to run it just riding for a minute just to, you know, kick the tires. And, and this was a, uh, the whole riding thing has actually been shockingly successful to me. Like the fact that people will sit and read long form pieces on, you know, they will on beach Grit, which is totally, I thought, okay, we're going to throw riding up to get to video. Yeah. Um, but people are actually engaging oddly with the riding. And so, yeah, we'll continue to have that, but we're obviously gonna branch into video, but I don't want it to be in the model of just aggregating. Like it seems like, you know, some of the other websites just aggregate whatever three minute surf clips out there, they throw up, sure. you throw up a brief little whatever description. And then you have tons of clips that who gives a fuck about? Like, I don't care about some no name guy surfing in Kauai for three minutes. Like right. I just don't, there's a bunch of horrible surf content out there. And that's where I think surf content hasn't evolved at all or the video side hasn't evolved at all. Right. There's just still throwing, they're not curating anything or creating anything for their audience. It's right. just, okay, what's let's aggregate everything. Cause it's a view game. And so they're trying to get, if we get, you know, 20 likes or 20 views from this kid's Facebook, you know, let's throw his video up, but it's a pain in the ass to wade through all this shit. It is. Um, and so, I, so as we go, uh, we're going to start curating really good videos or creating our own really good video content. Um, and then we have some other top secret things that I would love to talk about, but yeah, one that, when they come date. out, yeah. One of the other things though, to me is the, that I will talk about is the competitive thing. Um, do you, do you ever go to the barracks? No, I'm familiar with it, yeah. but yeah. So barracks a, is a skate website and I had never really heard of it either, but it's the biggest website in action sports. It's right. massive. Um, and they do this thing called battle of the barracks, right? Which is just man on man doing the game of skate, which is, you know, uh, I didn't skate before. It's like horse sure. playing basketball. Precisely. Right. Video, I mean, it's live broadcast, huge, huge, huge views. Uh, and it's not a, you know, it's not sanctions, it's, it's sanctioned. It's not a this or that or the other thing. It's not the ASP. But I think there's a huge appetite for watching. I don't know. I, you know, I like watching competitive surfing and it's fun enough. But, you know, if B. Durbage is surfing against Kyle, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who cares? Right. People don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch that. Right. But how awesome would it be to go to have Dane Reynolds paddle out against, uh, you know, Craig Anderson at lowers when everybody else is in the water, too? And you film film it for 30 seconds or 30 minutes, you know, and just who gets like in real conditions, who gets the best waves, who does the best stuff and have people online vote, you know, and mm -hmm. I think there's a way to redo competition uh, and serve competition to the consumer in a way that's actually super fun and engaging as opposed to uh, WSL is, it's great for what it is, right? Sure. I mean, there, there has to be a format, a format like that. And, and I, you know, it, it is what it is and it's fine. But I think there's tons of room to do kind of guerrilla indie competitive stuff that yeah. would really engage. I mean, I'd want to see what Craig would do versus Dane on a crowded day at lowers. Like yeah. who can out, who paddles better, who picks better waves, who, yeah. you know, in real conditions, I mean, instead of clearing the lineup, I think that'd be pretty fun to watch. Surfline's done the, the like free surf, put a camera on lowers sure. prior to the event when all the guys are in the water and the waves are pumping sure. for eight hours, but there's no commentary. There's no, no. structure. It's eight hours of, 
one crappy angle totally. where the camera barely pans enough to see the wave. Totally. So, and people still tune into that. Totally. It's like, they're so hungry for the content, they'll watch that. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's awful. And to me, if you had funny commentators yeah. talking about it and you had real high production quality on- Very moderate production, yeah, you know? People would, I think it'd be really, really fun to yeah. do something. So I want to bring a competitive thing onto Beach Grit. I fully agree. It's fully underdeveloped. Yeah. There's such a wide chasm between the three minute rip yeah. clip and the WSM. Yeah. There's nothing in between. Zero in yeah. between. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Fully agree. Yeah, it's which is ridiculous to me that there's that room, but I'm happy there's that room because of I, course. I, I feel at Beach Grit, you know, again, there's room to play. And Beach Grit's the platform that can implement all that thing. Yeah, and it's fun. But I think it's the sort of thing that in 10 years we'll, in hindsight, look back and just be like, can you believe what we were? It was like archaic back yeah. then. We were surviving on Totally, nothing, totally. Yeah. Um, What's the structure for how pieces are published? Like, is it a daily updated thing? Like for listeners who haven't ever been there, why should they go? How often should they go? Is it yeah, go, sporadic? Go sporadically, go okay. often because it's uh, it's me and Derek and then right. we, have a, we have now finally a uh, stable of, I think the funniest, funnest writers who, who don't have voices anywhere else. And it'll be when Derek and I kind of, yeah, like I'll put something up every day Derek will put something up every day and then the other guys will put you know stuff up every once in a while so it's it's usually there'll be you know between two to five posts a day yeah and I mean like the f thing I love most about it is it'll still get me to laugh like last night uh, I went on and Derek had done a story uh, did you read the Matt with Warshaw's? Matt Warshaw? yeah, I did about, yeah about which surf rider you would want to get in a romantic relationship with. And it was, I, like, I was on the floor laughing. Yeah. And it, this was, you know, my, half of my website, right? right? Like, and it's still totally busting me up. And that's what, that's what I like about it, yeah. is that it's that free, where Derek and I both just, you know, go to town and we collaborate on a bunch of stuff and then we'll just do our own little random, you know, okay, this was funny in the news or this was funny, sure. you know, let's just throw this up. So yeah, there's no real consistent, like, which I need to get to, we will get to, I think evolve to, is like almost a slate of programming. So mm -hmm. on this day, you can expect this, on this day, you can expect that. We'll have that alongside the kind of just, you know, funny stuff that pops up. Considering that it's a largely, I mean, targeted towards comedy and humor, you know, yeah. and um, doesn't have the vetting process that the regular mainstream media does. Have you guys ever published anything that in hindsight you regret? No, hell no. Really? <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you about the Bruce Irons piece. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was one I read this Bruce Irons um, hypothetical death row scenario, yeah. I think was the title yeah. for it, right? <laughs> Where it's like uh, Derek, I think, was wrote it and interviewed Bruce, but he was like, the premise of the piece was like, when I was a kid, I used to envision being on death row and wonder what was the crime I had committed to put myself on death row. Yeah. And then I'd go through this hypothetical scenario of envisioning what the crime was. Yeah. And so now I'm going to run Bruce through this gamut of questions. Yeah. I couldn't get on board with the premise. <laughs> I was like, I've never envisioned that scenario in my life. Yeah. And it's sick that you do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, um, that's Derek right there. Sure. But I, I mean, I, I can still see where the humor is in it, but then Bruce participating in it just got macabre. Like yeah. it was weird. Yeah. And him talking about like his scenario that he painted was like, he found his wife cheating. And so he killed the other guy and now he was gonna go to, he's gonna be like 
sent to the uh, electric chair and he wants his wife to see and witness it. Yeah. And like, what are the last words to your kids and yeah. all this sort of thing? What's the response to stuff like that? Um, I think it's funny. People, in my experience, with people, it's really hard to get people to res- respond to stuff they like uh, and they'll respond to stuff they don't like a sure. little bit um, to that piece and, and most of the stuff of Beach Grit. The response has been, uh, positive, like funny. Oh, we like what you guys are doing. Keep it up, but nothing real negative. Like, and I think, oddly, I think that both Derek and I have carved out niches where that's what people expect from us. Totally. And so, if that piece would have been, you know, at surfermag.com oh, yeah. or something, it would have had a. There would have been a lot of negative blowback. But I think people automatically think that's just Chaz or that's just Derek, which gives us, I think, leeway to do even more. Just yeah, because, that's a great point. Because it's what people sort of expect. And so it doesn't it doesn't carry the real which and I like to think also that it gives surfers more freedom to talk to us about stuff mm. than others because it doesn't carry the weight of, you know, the okay, this is going into the Bible of surf, right? It's yeah. like uh, you know, Chaz made me say it or Derek asked weird questions or whatever. Like I yeah, think exactly. it gives them time to play because it's not just so crazy serious. Yeah, I would think, though, that based on the way that the model, the surf media model has been all these years, that somebody at Bruce's sponsors, you know, at Fox would read that and have a problem with it. I think it's so. But so many of these guys, I think that I deal with like the middle manager kind of guys, uh, those kinds of guys who would read it first. They want that kind of stuff out there. They think it's really funny. Hmm. And then they have to really, you know, wring their hands about how to sell it up to their boss or hope that he doesn't see it or whatever. But I think everybody's fucking bored. Like, and so even the middle media manager guys are so bored of what's out there that when something a little spicy comes along, I think it's funner for them to have to think about how to deal with that as opposed to just being bored again. And on one hand, and I think on the other hand too, Derek and I have both been in this game for so long where I'm sure we'll cross the line and have crossed the line uh, and you know, we'll continue to cross the line a lot. But I think both of us kind of have a real good feeling about the stuff that's, that's really, really gonna push buttons as opposed to the stuff that will cause people to be a bit uncomfortable but not like cause a total firestorm and sure. you know, get people You fired. know where the line is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the revenue model for Beach Grit then. Do you guys have advertisers on there or what's the model? We will. Initially, we wanted to start, you know, some of the great websites I think that that I respect and look at started with just running content yeah. and not worrying about revenue streams, just, you know, having fun for you know, six months, a year before building in this revenue thing. Um, and so part of what, again, what Beach Grit, what we wanted to do and want to do is build the audience first and then bring the advertiser on who wants to engage with that audience, which, which need, you know, means we need time to build the audience, which, which is what we're doing. And so both of us have really committed to uh, never changing the content and never, you know, not uh, transforming the site into something that it, that it shouldn't be because we needed revenue. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, at this point it's about building the consumer or building the audience as much as we can. And then we have you know, a surprising amount of brands actually have reached out and really? said they want to be part. Yeah. Wow. Um, mainstream type yeah, brands. Yeah. That yep. wow. Ma- mainstream brands, because I think they see that it's something new and it's something different. And I think there's kind of a, a bit of trust for, for what Derek has created. And so I think that 
Yeah, I think brands are interested. And again, the, the landscape is just so bleak. And so we'll partner with brands, I think, in the very near future. We have some stuff in the works now. But it'll be real authentic to what Beach sure. Street is. And it won't be anything that, yeah, we, we won't ever have to change what we do based, yeah. on, based on the sponsor. And p- part of how we're going to do that is instead of doing the kind of, uh, like, grab bag of, you know, all sponsors, all brands are are potential advertisers. Really target the brands that that align with our vision, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, be real. You know, focused on instead yeah. of okay, we have ten watches and you know everything. Then I mean, how do you? I don't even know. Like half the times I'll watch, like you watch a Vizsla pre-roll. And the surfer will be Hurley. Exactly. And it's real confusing even. Like, yeah. what value is either getting out of it? You think the surfer surfs for Vizsla, or you think that yeah. it's a Hurley-sponsored thing. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. No. And I don't know how how the brands are even okay with pre-rolls. I wondered the same thing. Like, with a Surfer Mag's doing this series called The Now. Yeah. And they published a video last week with Kern Cables. Yeah, you know, it's rides, funny. rides for Aruka. I, it's funny. My, it's the same one. My yeah. wife said, Kern, my wife watched that one and said, Currents. It was a Visla who pre-rolled. Visla sponsors yeah, the now. The, yeah, the whole series. So, the now. So my wife said, came to me and said, "Hey, Visla sponsors Current Capels," and I said, "No, no, no. He's sponsored by Ruka." And she showed me the video and said, "See." And I even had to look real carefully and really think, okay, is this just footage from yeah. when he had, re- you d- it's not, it's totally unclear, which right. it like, and I don't know who it's good for. I guess it's probably good for Vizsla because it looks like they sponsor Curran, right? And so I guess, yeah, you're if you right. like Curran, then sure. But still it's real. I mean, it's just so muddled. And, and you and I are guys who are super into it completely. and we're confused. I, and I don't even know what's yeah. happening. And if you just, and to me, that's what's happened to this this real rote approach to the advertising, where again, I want to create value at Beach Grit for the brands that, and it's brands we choose to be with, as opposed to like Derek and I, you know, have sat down and really isolated the brands that we want on board, and that's it. Like we're choosing them, yeah. Um, and to me, that's I don't know. I think we'll bring value to them. And that'll bring value to us, and mm-hmm. it'll be awesome, as opposed to just this real weird, you know, wh- what's happening and why is it happening scenario. In the print world, I think, you know, the Surfer's Journal did a good job with that, yeah. where it's like we got six advertisers. Totally. Brands that we believe in. Precisely. That work with Patagonia. The, d- precisely. Know. It works completely with the aesthetic. Yeah. You're not frustrated when you see a Patagonia ad in Surfer's Journal. It right. makes complete sense it's aligned beautifully with the ethos of both brands Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean to me the surface journal is they're geniuses right i mean they made a viable print publication that's beautiful in a time when there shouldn't be any of that right and like you know god bless the surface journal totally and they've never bitten off more than they can chew it's like six issues we can hit that target and still produce quality content and cover no it's amazing yeah, it really is. Um, so you guys, I think Beach Grid also breaks stories sooner than I yeah. see them break anywhere else. It's funny. We get, yeah, we get bit a lot. Yeah. What's the, what's your approach for collecting content? I mean, how do you? I think Derek and I are just, I mean, the, one of the great things is Derek's in Australia and I'm here. And sure. so we have basically a 24 hour ear open. Yeah. Um, and both of us, again, have been in long enough where we have so we have great sources, both of us, that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll hear things first. And then 
you know, I'm super happy just to go throw rumor up, <laughs> call it rumor, but you know, not allegedly, whatever you want to say, you know, not getting anybody in trouble, but uh, yeah. And, and we're not, since we're not uh, bad publicity averse or people getting mad sure. averse, then we're happy to, you know, do it. And it's funny this, I mean, it's happened, you know, more times than I can count stuff we've put up and then you'll see it on stab yeah. or surfing or whatever the, the next day or two days later, or a week later and constantly. Fun. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's funny. Uh, is there any latest gossip you want to break right now? <laughs> I'm trying to think of what I know. I heard um, something about Kelly maybe, um, being involved financially backing firewire moving oh, forward in 2015. That's, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. That's a good rumor. Yeah. Ooh, I'm gonna strictly I'm gonna, rumor. I'm gonna check that one down. Yeah, yeah. Did, I don't. What is Taj's involvement anymore in Firewire? Did he sell or does he still own his piece of Firewire? I have no clue. Taj owns a chunk of it too. Yeah. Firewire. Yeah. Have you ever ridden a Firewire? No. Yeah. Have you? I did one once. What yeah. Were your thoughts. It was a long time ago, and it was probably not. A, I think it was one of Taj's boards actually, uh, okay. and so it was not meant for me. But yeah. Backstory was that like. Kelly's on the North Shore right now riding boards that, you know, were logo lists yeah. and seemed to be Firewire construction. And a couple of weeks prior, he was playing a game of golf with one of the Firewire execs okay. down in North San Diego. Okay. So it's all that's, just hearsay. Yeah, I, I wish I had better. I wish I had more rumor right now. Um, uh, so just wanted to get your thoughts on a couple things about surfing at large, just yeah. aside from Beach Grit and the book and stuff. Just because the wsl is changing and evolving and like there's a lot of just it's kind of an interesting time in surfing i guess it probably always is um one of the things i think they've struggled with is like the big wave world tour yeah like and packaging competitive big wave surfing and even just now like they greenlit piahi yesterday morning yeah and then later at night decided oh it's probably not going to be consistent enough so they canceled it like, how do you green light it and then cancel it? It's poor. What's your thoughts on the Big Wave World Tour thing? Or do you enjoy watching it even? I mean... To me, it's the the Big Wave World Tour is theoretically the most compelling of anything of surfing. Because it's, it's the easiest to understand, right? Sure. Like, I, how, I don't think the the average consumer really knows the difference between a stale fish grab and a, you know, slob reverse and what should be scored higher and blah, blah, blah. No. I think it gets fairly... The nuances of surfing... Uh, can get easily lost, but the big wave is easy, right? It's just a big wave. Um, And I'll say I like watching guys take off on big waves, but I don't think I've watched a heat of big wave. How are the lulls like forever? Yeah. And they run the whole event in one day. Yeah. Crazy long lulls. And yeah, I don't know. And they can't, they can't build up the pre-show hype as much yeah. because it's like we don't know that that swell's coming until yeah. a few days in advance. I mean, to me though, the whole thing was, and you know, WCL can pay me later for this. They're retarded for, and I, you know, I've told them this, uh, but for, okay, look at the Olympics. You have tons of sports that nobody gives a shit about. Yeah, you get Bob Costas to tell tear jerky stories you know you go to the guy's hometown in ohio and you get that jimmy whatever his dude's name is who has the voice and it's like and ratings through the roof people are compelled by these human interest stories of where there's not even professional athletes in that sport zero the guy's a plumber precisely yeah where you have surfing yeah i don't know how why it's so impossible to tell compelling stories about these guys. I mean, some of them are pretty damn boring, but still, you can still figure out compelling human interest stories. 
build like fan bases around individuals. Like, you know, I've been in surfing forever. I don't know three things about Joel Parkinson. Like, you know, he's surf smooth and he seems boring, whatever. But like, he has a really nice wife. Like, I don't, uh, those are the three things I know about Joel Parkinson. Right. He's like one of the major stars. They can't even, they're not even selling someone who's been in it forever enough, anything to even hang my hat on. Like, where I don't know why they don't dispense with their just horrible gibberish between heats uh, or in the middle of heats. And, you know, when you have time, really tell me the stories of these guys. Like, tell me who they are. Tell me where they came from. I mean, really with production value. I fully agree. And I think that that is a possible solution for them. I think that the reason why we haven't met that solution yet is because they're at a point where they're still developing a business model and they don't have enough revenue yeah. to hire somebody to go tell that story. But why didn't they why didn't they use some of their why did they not use the desk know. money for that initially or their stupid know. graphics money? I mean it's at, what they've spent their money on to me is completely asinine and I'm wrong about a lot of things and I might be wrong about this one too. But the the product they're building is unsaleable. Like the NFL watcher doesn't watch surfing and they're trying to package it like NFL where it's just not, it's not, it's not the same consumer and they think people care. That's the problem. Surfing and everybody's like I read, uh, what was it? Oh, for the, I did this stupid little story on beach Kid about it, but the, uh, waterman, ultimate waterman competition. Oh, right. Okay. It's happening in New Zealand. They claim on their website that they have 50 million viewers online, 50 million viewers for this ultimate waterman, which I think they're all like, it's the same as WSL. WSL is always pumping these massive numbers out where let's just be really honest. Nobody's watching this shit or very few people Dude, are watching Game it. Game of Thrones yeah. doesn't get 50 million viewers. Precisely. American Idol. Precisely. Like, maybe to, I, Precisely. And so just stop it. Stop, yeah. stop gaming the numbers and start really trying to figure out how to build actual consumers. It seems like that's what they think about is how to game the numbers and how to make it look like, okay, if we, you know, if somebody, if we can get somebody to click on whatever, I mean, I don't know how, I don't even know how you game numbers. Like do you pay right. people in India to watch it? I don't know what they're doing, but it's not true. Surfing is a, that's the thing about surfing that makes it both great and difficult, I think, is it's minuscule. Like it's a minuscule, minuscule amount of people do it or care about it. And in order to, so in order to grow a viable business, you have to get people who don't care about it to invest time in it, right? right. And you do it, I think, by building compelling stories to get people to want to watch it, you know, and Completely. they're not doing that by having, you know, Dave Wassell and the rest of them, Dave Wassell yeah, and yeah. the rest of them, you know, gibber mindlessly, just horrible, unwatchable. It's unwatchable. I yeah. mean, unwatchable product. For guys who are super into it. Yeah. For guys yeah. who are super into it. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of Gabe Medina being Brazilian world title, you know, holder and going into 2015? Just cursory thoughts. Do you have an opinion? Uh, yeah. I mean, I care? just, I think... It's gonna. I do. I much to my own chagrin. I care. Like yeah. I really like. I mean, I love. I grew up loving surfing, and the competitive part has always been part of it. And that the, title you know, race can, going sure, into pipes. It's so, always fun. Yeah. I mean, it always is. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we were just just entering. You know, a real Brazilian. You know, decade or two decades or century, like of real Brazilian dominance on wow. tour. And it seems like they've come up now. They can surf all the waves. And you have your John Johns and you have your, you know, I mean, obviously exceptional other surfers, but it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like Gabe's 
got it figured out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like he's, and I don't know what, what'll stop him besides injury. Like yeah. the fact that he won one, I could see him going on a tear and then I could see a Brazilian coming up and taking the baton from him, which is, I wonder what the WCL is gonna do with that, right? Like yeah. you sell big in Brazil, sure, but you know, the Brazilian consumer is not why Samsung is, exactly. is paying or did pay a little bit of dollars, so right. yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, um, in, you mentioned what could stop him other than, other than injury. Yeah. I could see injury stopping Gabe Medina because I've never seen him training, no. first of all. And every time they show, like, ask him what his food, favorite food is or show him getting ready for his heat at Trestles, he's making chocolate milk every yeah. morning. And he's even <laughs> said, like, I eat chocolate milk and yeah. have a cheese sandwich yeah. in the morning, you know? That's so Portuguese. Which, and so different, though, than Mick Fanning yeah. and Kelly Slater's ritual, yeah. who are older and not the same generation. But still, it's like... Whoa, dude, Gabriel, it seems to me he's strictly talent. Yeah. Who's developed enough competitive savvy to win heats, but doesn't really have the wherewithal to push past whatever passion. Totally. But just think you have under him, you have a, you know, a nation of Brazil, like these frothy Brazilians who now have watched Gabby do it and now know how to do it. And, you know, to me, there's just going to be, you know, potentially this revolving door of a new Brazilian champ every yeah. two years, but always a Brazilian champ. You know, and, le- and again, who knows? Maybe John John will catch fire and win, you know, 15 in a row right. and really be, you know, be the champion for the foreseeable future. He has obviously got, is by far the most talented surfer in the world yeah. and is t- completely ridiculous. But I don't see what's going to keep John John compelled to compete, right? Uh, there's so many other options for a guy like that, where I think for a Brazilian surfer, there's one option, it's mm-hmm. WSL, and it's not like you win and then there's a bunch more options. At least for Gabby, he's not gonna go off and make an awesome movie part now, like, right. or he's gonna compete again. Like, right. that's his option. Interesting. So who do you enjoy watching? Who do you like watching surf? Obviously, John John seems like you're a fan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real bummer because John John, he's such an easy one to be a yeah. fan of. And so you want to find like, oh, you know, I like some other indie guy. But John John is, you know, he blows my mind with what he does. Uh, he's one of the few that I'll watch his clips and be like, okay, that was worth my time. I really like Hector Santa Maria. Have you yeah, seen him surf? Totally. I really, really like what he does. It's It's doesn't seem like it's structured the same way that other mm-hmm. people surf. And so um, he's real fun. Who who else have been really enjoying lately? Um, seems like I kind of tick through a different f- favorite surfer every, like, three weeks. Um, yeah. Kolohe, I still really like to watch Do surf. You? Yeah. I like it's It's formulaic, but as he's getting bigger and older, I like what he's doing on his rail a bit. And it seems kind of fun. Yeah. I like him too. Yeah. He surfs unbelievably yeah. well. I, I mean, no he's, question he's about so, it. yeah, he's so good. Chloe is, is such an awesome kid too. I really like Chloe as a person too. So really? it probably paints part of the way I feel about a surfing. Yeah. Sure. I, as it should. Um, so considering the beach grit doesn't have any revenue at the moment, how do you make a living currently? You said you're not interested in writing for surfing. Yeah. Um, nope. No more surfing. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I just write for Esquire. I write for, uh, I got a piece I'm working on for the Atlantic right now. And about what? uh, Atlantic is going to be about food, about about illegal milk in Alabama. Oh, wow. Yeah, it'll be. Um, it'll be a fun story. And did you you went to Sochi, right? Yeah, was that for the I did for Esquire? for Esquire. Yep. Cool. Yeah, it was super so you, fun. 
doing write freelance writing jobs for yeah, outside basically yeah industries. and and kind of working on book number two so i was gonna ask you piecing it together what's book number two book number two is called tentatively and it's still way in the works but tonight we dine in hell i'm going on i'm gonna do a hell series and so a, a trilogy of hell books so Where does dinner take place yeah tonight we dine in hell <laughs> it's gonna be all about illegal food so oh, from like okay. rhino, you know rhino horn to illegal puffer fish to in the united states so wow the the food black market interesting so not surfing then. no no i think i'm done with surf i mean i'll beach great is my last toe in surf makes sense yeah done um are there any stories in surfing that kind of if you had adequate resource and unfettered access that you would like to either tell or maybe just to be told the eddie rothman story would be great i think i mean that that's one that i would pay to read or watch. Um, what are some other ones? There are some real good ones out there. I think about this from time to time. Uh, there's the, oh, have you seen Sea of Darkness? No. The movie, that one's awesome. That one's already been told. Is it a It's a it movie, about? it's a documentary. It's about the founding of G-Land. And no. the early Drug, drug running, running and all of it. It's, it's amazing. It's kind of ringing a bell. It's awesome. It'll, I think it's coming out officially oh, soon. Okay. I mean, it, it's been floating around for a while, but you had okay. to kind of catch a screener or the director showed it to me. But yeah, you had to kind of know someone who knew someone. But uh, that's a great, great, great story. Um, more of those. I'm trying to think of, oh, there's the, uh, what, what was it called? The Sunshine something, something. Is that Laguna Beach? hippie commune oh. drug running yeah, surf yeah, yeah, guys yeah. all those ones I always like I like the where surf kind of meets other culture yeah you know I guess mostly drug culture yeah, is, exactly is fun just because there's where some there's a lot of money involved yeah there's money and, and there's guns and there's danger yeah. and there's you know surfing by itself I've never really as a story is great but what is there you know it's paddling out and, yeah, mm -hmm. surfing it's great exactly. it's fun it's fun to do but it's not that fun to read about someone else doing mm -hmm. and so I, yeah I like my surf stories with something else what about uh, and the Andy situation and story is that done with or you know who cares I think who cares I mean okay. I really liked watching Andy surf yeah but there wasn't much more than that I, yeah. he's a, he was a great funny interview you know complex kind of a little bit of a complex guy you know it could be but, you know, I think people talk about his complexity. He could be really funny and really engaging and really angry and really sullen. Right. And I don't know how complex that makes somebody. It just sure. seems like he was a guy. But And people have talked to me about it a lot. And I just don't see what the story is, frankly. Like, yeah. it was a guy who served who died of a drug overdose. And The story seems to be the drug overdose and whatever cover-up is involved in not telling the story. Totally, which, again, would be an interesting story for people who really know the surf industry and, and mm -hmm. you know, like what did or did not, you know, Graham Stapleberg know and when did he know yeah. it kind of stuff, like the, this Watergate of that. Right. But to me, I bet it's not much there. I bet they really kind of knew something was up they do you know they knew something was up and then blah 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 but at the, the cover-up i think of his death i don't think was actually i don't think there's much there i sure. think you know they it's kind of they just didn't know and it, then they did know and then you know and of course you know what's it listed on the autopsy they died of a heart attack right and so i've heard people right. say that oh, he did he died of a heart attack and okay sure but you know usually fit 30 year olds don't die of heart attacks right. so what the heart yeah what caused the heart attack but that i mean and i've had people 
talk to me and think that it's this story, you know, this Hollywood story. And again, I don't know what the angle is. Like, so a surfer, a surfer died of a drug overdose. Like people in Hollywood, that's what they think surfers are kind of druggies anyway. So like, where's the twist? Where's the story? I don't see it, but I could be totally wrong. No, I mean, dude, I, I can probably be argued either way like and i could believe it but i i think that you have a pretty good point in terms of like don't waste your time writing the book yeah could be a good beach grid article great sure about the cover-up totally. or whatever totally but it's not much yeah it's not much more than an yeah. interesting article but again i could be wrong um you have any plans to travel to war-torn countries from this point on you said you have a kid now so probably yeah. not so much i was funny i was going to book number two was going to be about war journalism uh and i still might bring it back um but yeah, I went to Ukraine recently uh, and was there, you know, and I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I might, I might bring it back. It's, Do you have the drive, the y- desire? It's hard being in Ukraine. I didn't think Ukraine was going to be, you know, I thought, okay, great, Eastern Europe, whatever, but it was pretty sketchy. Hmm. And now I have something to lose or, yeah, you know, I. Yeah, like I wouldn't want my daughter to grow up without a father. Right. And before, I hated my ex-wife, so I didn't care. Like, <laughs> ah, screw you, you'd be a widow. You, uh, you wrote um, really openly about that in the book, which yeah. I thought was really <laughs> intriguing. Yeah. It's scary. It's funny, people people have mentioned, I thought it was just like a throwaway kind of line. Like, it's true, it's how I felt at the yeah. time and whatever. And But yeah, people, I think it caught a few people off guard. But Totally. Yeah, but now- well, it's like, it's your deepest feelings that we've all had about our yeah. spouses and loved ones that I would never say out loud, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you're saying it. Yeah, yeah, I felt that way. Yeah, and yeah. so- but yeah, like now, I don't know, I don't have the same drive. And to, again, the landscape has just changed to do it. And I know what it takes to really commit to war journalism. And you really have to put yourself there. You can't, yeah. you know, if you go in with kind of a half toe, then you look like Anderson Cooper, which is fine, but I don't want to be Anderson Cooper. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's hard. I hear you. Do you have any ambition or interest in driving or traveling to beautiful locations that are warm and sunny like Tahiti or anything like that I, mean, I just I just got back from Tahiti oh, or, you did. yeah not too long ago and yeah okay. I love it it's great just but, like a surf trip or a vacation mm, or? I, yeah I was doing I was I wrote it's actually in the new surfers journal I wrote a story on uh, Raymana world on oh, okay. Raymana's yeah it's in the surfers journal I don't know if it's if it's even out yet the one with Dion on the cover I haven't seen it yeah so the, it, the most Dion recent ages yeah he's on the cover of oh. surfers journal wow that's yeah, pretty awesome but um yeah so I was doing that story and it's great I like it and it's fun and, you know and I just got literally just got back from Switzerland a few days ago oh okay and I love good good trips yeah but I'm good. personally I just want to find yeah I those are great for family and I like to have fun but if I'm going somewhere I want to be somewhere with a compelling story, and usually that compelling story for me is dark. And so, good dark places are. I I like that everything that you've talked about is all centered around story. Yeah, over and over again, because really that's what I'm interested in, and that's what the podcast is all about. It's like give people a long form opportunity to unpack nuanced story that just is too difficult to tell in print and even in video it's like i'm not going to watch a video that's more than a couple minutes long you know and all of that is also edited like this allows story to take place it's funny how like i had never really been into audio as much but i you know i love npr like i'll Mm -hmm. happily gladly sit in traffic or sit in traffic for three hours up to la because it gives me a chance to listen to you know if i'm going from five to you know, or when it, I guess it runs four to seven, 
that you can catch all fresh stories. But I'll be so happy to sit in three hours of traffic just to catch three hours of NPR. Yeah. Um, and I've just started to get into podcasts, and I really, really, really like yeah the audio format. It's, it's something that I never, ever, ever would have thought about. Mm-hmm. But it's the I mean, it's the best. You can sit in traffic and be completely entertained. And those things that you might miss on NPR when they broadcast, yeah. they upload onto yep. a server and you can podcast yep. it anytime you want and download it for free. Yeah. There's no red tape yep. from advertising. There's no limitations in terms of length. You could do a five minute show. You could do a three hour show. It's, I think people are, so, I mean, even this, like there's a microphone in front of me, but you're not thinking about it. Like no. when there's a camera in front of you, you're, I'm always thinking it's about the camera. Thing. Yeah. And if I'm writing something or, or somebody's interviewing me, like whatever I say is all inevitably going to be passed through their yeah. filter. And yeah. There's a couple of other elements too, just physically that take place. Like I think listening in your car, you're sitting there and you're captive. Whereas if you're reading something or yep. maybe looking at a video online, you're also checking Instagram on yep. your phone at the same time yep. and you're distracted. The car, obviously your objective is driving, but you're still held it's captive. It's the best. It is the, it's some of my favorite times yeah. in my life. It's, are, it's more intimate. Yeah. And I think too, like if you're wearing earbuds working out, they're physically in your ear yep. and there's an intimacy there. Yeah. And hearing people's voices, yep is an interesting way to process content too. Yeah, it's, I think it's a great platform. It's genius. Yeah. Who knew? What, yeah, I know. It's 20, old timing, yeah, you know? 21st it's 21st like, century and it's the voice that's yeah, still radio. Exactly. Um, kind of a couple wrap up questions are just related to, what's your current relationship with surfing? Do you still surf? How often? Yeah, and I'm going out straight after this, yeah. Dude, we're blowing it right now. I, I think know. the waves are kind of good. It's, <laughs> it's been real fun here. Yeah, it's funny. I'll get into real surf dog moods, uh, where, yeah, I just, I can't help but go every yeah. single day and, you know, we'll stretch each session as long as I can. And then there's sometimes, especially if I'm working on a book, um, it's really, I've realized in later life that it's, there's just not enough time in the day to yeah. be a father, write and surf. And so if I'm inspired to write, then surfing gets sacrificed. Um, which is a bummer. It's weird living so close to the beach and yeah. not, but you just can't like carving that hour for surfing means that I don't have that hour for riding. And sometimes yeah. that hour for riding is, it's actually what I need. So, and even if you go surfing, you miss the riding. Precisely. It's like, I'm not no. even enjoying surfing because no. my priority is now completely, something else. Completely. That's, and so, yeah, but I'll surf on average, you know, like, I don't know, three times a week. Good. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Good. Final question is just what was the last board that you actually rode? Uh, I have right now a 5-2. Um, I'm six, I don't know, six something. Right. Uh, it's a 5-2 <laughs> little round nose uh, square tail uh, quad by, I think it's Space Bar. Is the, it's a, just a local shaper here. It's totally amazing. It's flat. Hmm. It's teeny. It's blue. And I love it to death. Uh, before that, and the board... The shaper that I swear by, though, that I will ask to be buried next to is Matt Violas. Like, really? Yeah, lost boards are... I ride a bottom feeder a lot around mm-hmm. here, which is... It's like... I don't know. It's not his... I don't know. I ride mine at like 5.5, five, I think. Wow. I ride it short. But it's got... It's so perfect. It's got like volume. I don't know. You know, I don't know enough about board, about board shaping to even talk knowledgeably. Sure. But whatever Matt Bialis does, he makes somehow a board that makes me feel like um, a pro. Like yeah. I can go and 
do wraparound carves on it and think, whoa, what am I doing? Why is this sick? I can, you know, get barreled without even knowing how to ride the barrel. Like, yeah. and that's Biolus. I love Biolus, but this little 5 2 thing, I don't know why it's so fun, but I'm just addicted to it right now. I'll get real board addicted, yeah. where, and then I'll ride the board inappropriately. So, like, it was. Start imposing your own will on the board. And I the, do the same thing. And even in the conditions, like, I ride that little 5 2 when it's like double overhead out here, and it's, I'm not catching anything, yeah. and it's horrible, and I'm just getting pounded. But it's just because I'm just, oh, that's the board I'm riding. But then you end up hating the board. Yeah. That's what no, I No, then up. it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. It's just and then it goes in the garage for yeah. two years. Yeah. You know? It's funny. I have a garage full of yellow boards and I got to figure out what to do. Maybe I should start. How do they feel when they're all yellow and brittle? I never, ever surf them. No, like, you can still ride them. Really? Yeah, totally. I just move from one board to the next and yeah. retire it to the garage, but never touch it again. Dude, some of the best boards I've ridden are like from the 80s. I'll pick them up at a garage sale and they yeah. are all yellowed and brittle, but yeah. they're new to me. Yeah. And it's like they're fine yeah okay i'm gonna start digging into my old quiver thanks for inspiring me yeah have fun today (laughs) yeah thank you you're welcome it's a pleasure thank you yeah a real pleasure great are you you gonna go sir We have links to purchase Chaz's book, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, and links to Beach Grit on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can leave a comment about anything we discussed in today's episode. There is 100% likelihood that Chaz and I will read your comment. So feel free. I'll pass the comment along to Chaz. Um, While you're on our website, you can actually listen to any past episode of Surf Splendor completely for free. Everything is archived. There's past episodes with Sean Thompson, Mickey Munoz. We actually did an episode with Matt Biolis, Chris Ward, and Corey Lopez about the design revolution that was the 5.5 by 19 and a quarter fish. That's a really cool episode. Also... This song by TV on the radio and all the music from every episode of Surf Splendor is archived on our site in case you've ever wondered. Uh, Make sure that you share the show with someone who would care. That's how we grow it and how we attract guests like Chaz to spend an hour talking to me. Want more big guests? Share the show. Simple as that. Also, rate and review the show in iTunes. That's basically like sharing it with strangers. All right. Thanks, Chaz. Thank you, listener. This is Surf Splendor, and this is David Scales. Ciao.